Today, we are putting Star Wars on the Rob Topsy table. Not Star Wars the movie, not the blockbuster film, the comic book, the comic book that literally saved Marvel Comics. Nobody knew what they had, not the publisher, not the fans. No one had heard of Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Han Solo, Darth Vader. This was a brand new experience, a huge risk. Find out all about the comic Stanley absolutely did not want to publish under any circumstances whatsoever. There is tons of historical relevance and creative pedigrees to be learned on an all-new Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Observations and another special edition of the Rob Topsy. What we do during the Rob Topsy is we take a particular body of work, a body of art, and we isolate it and examine all of its special properties, all of the reasons that it affected history, its 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 historical relevance, the creators, the creative uh, influence. The brush with greatness is where we cover how great the embellishing and the inking, they don't get enough praise, inkers, embellishers, the work that they do with brush and nib and quill. We got a good one today. We got a good one that we have put on the table for a very detailed Rob Topsy. Early in my podcasting endeavors with this particular show, uh, maybe the second or third show was called License to Thrill, and I covered Marvel's licensing boom and some of what. I discussed during that time was the Star Wars comic book and how it was key in turning so many of Marvel's fortunes around. We can get into even greater detail on on much of that through the historical relevance aspect of, of, of the Star Wars comic book because we are here to examine the Star Wars comic book, the 1977 Star Wars comic book that really turned the tables for Marvel Comics. The Star Wars comic book is as important to Marvel Publishing the history of Marvel and everything that followed as the Star Wars movie is to cinema. It's that important. You're, you're like, you're overstating it. I'm not. I am not at all. You will, you will hear editor-in-chiefs, editors, managers, business people at Marvel who will go on the record and tell you how this tremendous gamble, because it was a gamble. Star Wars, the comic book, turned Marvel's fortunes around. The great thing about the Star Wars story is we don't have to spend a lot of time with me going through issue by issue, although within the pages of the Star Wars comic book adaptation, kids who were my age, who were nine years old when this came out and, and, were, and were reading it, we saw a different version of this comic book on screen when it came out Memorial Day, 1977. I, I have told you of the great, it's not even pride. I just, I'm so fortunate to have seen Star Wars uh, in the movie theaters and and been there as it wowed a generation and generations it was teenagers it was 9 year olds like me and my 11 and 10 and 12 year old buddies and their brothers and their sisters sisters it, it was a movie scene with boys and girls i went uh with my friends the Berrymans. i i can tell you every movie theater that 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 particular experience that i went with with uh david Berryman, lori Berryman, linda Berryman. they were they were my 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 mom's best friends kids they were our family's best friends that theater is now torn down what what was risen from the ashes was originally called the block of orange now called the outlets of orange but for kids my age in orange county in the city of orange there was a 
uh, movie theater right there in Orange, not the Cynodome. That was a separate theater down the street. I would eventually go and move and start seeing this in the Cynodome. I saw it a lot at, at what was called the Anaheim, the Brookhurst Loge of Anaheim. And it only had like two or three movies playing, but boy, it babysat me. I saw it twice a weekend, every weekend for roughly, you know, every Saturday, Sunday. So you're, you're, you're looking at, at, at almost 26, 30 visits a weekend. Uh, and it, it, it repeat viewings, different friends, different family members. I am so fortunate to have been around at that time, but this comic book was a huge, a huge piece of, of, uh, marketing that was pushing it into the minds of young people. And, and we're going to be able to also really focus on the fact that this was an important period for comic books because big movies, big franchises, let's take the planet of the apes, for instance, the planet of the apes. I have read extensive histories, coffee table books. I, I have so much on, on planet of the apes. Because Planet of the Apes walked so that Star Wars could run. It was the first giant movie merchandising avalanche. It was not Star Trek, the TV series. It was the Planet of the Apes movie series. The merchandising actually kept the movies being greenlit, got the cartoons on the air, got the live-action TV show on the air. Marvel Comics dove deep in and did about a three-year, you know, huge commitment in, in regards to producing Planet of the Apes Four color comic books, the, the 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 standard comic book size, plus their much more successful magazine, uh, Planet of the Apes publication that came out each and every month, outlived the four color comics, the, the the with the two staples, the magazine because it was able to be bought at the the major retail outlets and again department stores, department stores of the the the, the Target and the WalMarts of that day were called the Woolworths, they were called the Gemcos, they were called the Treasuries. That these were um, many of these sites were taken over in the 80s and 90s and trans, transformed into targets. The target in Fullerton used to be the Gemco. Okay, that they, they, they just literally took them over, transformed them, boom, off to the races. But those are the places where families would go that had you know uh, women's apparel, men's apparel, kids' apparel, jewelry, uh, groceries, uh, toys, uh, stereo equipment, electronics, all in one giant building and, and and of course you know the Costco uh model the Walmart model and the Target model are the current most successful versions of these but back in that day they all had extensive uh publishing wings with books and then magazines surrounded by magazines so these magazines and this is going to be really important in, in in regards to Star Wars as well but again the Star Wars actual story the actual comic book the contents of it as you know the 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 story in the comics it doesn't change you know Obi Wan still recruits a, a young farm boy they have to save a princess the droids are there they they get Han and and Chewie from from the cantina that that really is the contents of the second issue of, of Star Wars uh, they broke it up into six chapters the first Star Wars comic again speaking to the importance uh, that 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 the studios viewed the comic book publishers. With Planet of the Apes having so much success, then MGM putting Logan's Run as a comic book out in 1976 alongside the movie being in theaters, uh, a, a, a movie that was slightly more obviously adult uh, nudity in it, uh, but, but they, wanted, they wanted those sci-fi eyeballs and they felt the best way to transform them and to recruit them was to go to you know, the comic book space and get the young readers that were buying Marvel Comics because Marvel Comics were number one. 
Now, as you know, the publishing, the, the publishing uh, marketplace in the 70s was not as robust as it would then later go on to be, which is why Star Wars is so important to Marvel Comics and, and, and their bottom line and everything they were able to do afterwards. It really became rocket fuel for them. But the stories, getting people sold on these worlds, whether it was Planet of the Apes, Logan's of the Run, I mean, TV shows like Man from Atlantis in 1976 had, had comic books because they wanted that eyeball, that comic book eyeball to turn on the TV, go to the theater. So getting this comic book in your hands through Marvel Comics was a priority for Lucasfilm. George Lucas is on record. He wanted a comic book. There are absolute... Uh, What's the word? Uh, uh, disagreements as to uh, if Marvel was first at bat, last at bat, middle at bat. The, the, there are different, uh, you know, recollections in regards to history. But what I'm dealing with is the facts. Marvel Comics did indeed do the Star Wars comic book. I, I don't know if Warren Magazine turned them down, if DC turned them down, as different agents of Lucasfilm have claimed over over time. Marvel ended up with it. Marvel pulled the trigger. We're going to get into some of the behind-the-scenes mechanics of that and the historical relevance of all this. But the most important part of sharing this Star Wars autopsy is you have to know it was kind of the the, the comic book was published as a uh, you know as a messenger to get the message out to get to get fans recruited because Star Wars number one from Marvel Comics launched. Arrived on newsstands April 12th, 1977. Issues one and two were already in our hands before the comic book came out. I was one of those people who bought this right off the stands. There's a reason this cover has been so wildly imitated. Howard Chaikin, who illustrated the cover, Tom Palmer, who inked this particular version on the comic book, but Howard Chaikin did a different version himself, almost like a movie poster version. Uh, Alex Ross has infamously uh, recreated this with his incredible painting technique. This image, this Star Wars number one, with the different ships flying out left, right at the top, this green masked man with fiery glowing eyes, which is Darth Vader, uh, miscolored, uh, the, 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 the cowboy guy with his gun looking very sci-fi, and then the, 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 the white cloaked, you know, uh, warrior, young warrior at the center with his laser sword. Luke Skywalker, it was just, trust me when I tell you that this was a immediate impulse buy. Did not know of Star Wars. Trailers back in the day were not like trailers of today. The stuff that we were seeing on TV and the few trailers that we got for Star Wars when we would go see the Disney movies that I would go see at the time or when my parents would drag me to one of their, you know, adult films because they don't have, um, <laughs> not adult like R, like, like adult like uh, more mature films, R rated films. Cause, cause again, Patty Liefeld liked her cinema. And Paul would drive three cities away and I would just go watch the new Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford movie. And, you know, but most of the time it was my dad taking me to see the 1976 King Kong or the Apple Dumpling Gang or, you know, Sleepy Hollow or whatever re-release of the Disney cartoons because they were already re-releasing Disney cartoons back then. The Robin Hoods, the Pinocchios, the Snow Whites. That's where we saw the Star Wars trailer. If you go back and you look at those original trailers, you can see how very little is known. It's a lot of, you know, uh, unknown faces and images that we don't yet associate with how familiar and great and epic and moving they're going to be towards us. Movie trailers are more like teasers. They're nowhere near uh, as expansive as long as, as they are. They were nowhere near as long as expansive as they are nowadays. And they didn't give away nearly as much plot and as much 
story information. So I knew Star Wars was coming, you know, if, especially if you watch the TV shows where the logo would come at you and then like the, 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 the Death Star exploding effects like exploded behind the logo in space. I remember Chewbacca, you know, going, I mean, you, you remember all that, you know, tight close-ups on everybody, Luke swinging across with the princess on the line. Those are the kind of stuff that we saw. But Star Wars was really new. So it was important for Lucasfilm to get this Star Wars, this Star Wars comic book, what is on the Rob Topsy table today. It was important for them to get this out in advance. It was a bad, bad example here. It's like Paul Revere, you know, running through his on horseback, you know, issuing his his message that the, that the British are coming. It, it was the forebearer. The, the comic book was was there to get in the comic book reader's hands and to initiate excitement to start a conversation and to increase our curiosity. And it, it, it accomplished all of those things. Howard Chaikin was known to me because of his comic book work that I had picked up here or there. Uh, he had done, you know, different work for DC with the sword and sorcery line that we've covered here on Rob observations. He had done Cody Starbuck. He had done a uh, lot, lot of science fiction stuff. Word has it that he was handpicked by George Lucas. George Lucas, uh, of course had a say in the matter and, and, and thought that his art was the most kind of advanced, most, uh, technically science fiction uh, proficient in regards to being able to pull off what he wanted. And so, uh, once the creative team was established, Howard pencils and inks, all of the, the, the first issue. And it is a really fun, uh, memorable, iconic work of art. And that first issue, that first chapter really covers, I mean, honestly, it, 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 it covers to where uh, Luke is attacked by the sand people. That is where the first issue ends. That is where, you know, the cutoff is. And, uh, and, and you, you, you close the issue with the Tuscan Raider, you know, hovering his stick above, uh, above Luke in this very dramatic shot over the, the, the Tuscan Raider's shoulder. Clearly covers, uh, begins the same way, you know, with, with the, uh, with, with the, Star Destroyer overtaking Leah's ship with Darth Vader interrogating uh, and Leah escaping. But all, I'm going to tell you, here's the, here's the kicker. In, I'm, I'm only going to count story pages, not, not pages with ads. So <clears throat> by the time you get to the fifth page, the very fifth page of the Star Wars movie adaptation, here's where we're, and we're going to be um, discussing more of this in regards to the historical relevance aspect. You have Luke. At Anchorhead, walking into the bar, hanging out with Biggs. Biggs Darklighter formally introduces himself. Biggs Light, Biggs Darklighter is at your service. You know, uh, it has it has Luke in his in his kind of like fisherman's cap uh, and his binoculars, riding in on his speeder, and uh, and and you've got you've got this exchange and. Uh, <clears throat> You know, Luke says, Biggs, I didn't know you were back. And he goes, I arrived just now. I thought you'd be here. Certainly didn't expect you not, uh, you to be out working. Implying like, you know, maybe Luke was a bit of a party boy before uh, Uncle Uncle, uh, Owen kind of restricted him and made him work on all those moisturizers. Uh, Hey, what happened? Didn't you get your commission, Luke says? And he says, of course, I got it. I signed aboard the uh, elliptical last week. First mate 
Biggs Darklater at your service. I just came to say goodbye to all you unfortunate, uneducated simpletons. And he says, wait, I almost forgot. There's a battle going on out, out, out in our star system. Um, come and look. And uh, other people comment and say, oh, not again, Biggs. He's always dreaming. And, and Luke says, no, come, come. And, and, and it shows uh, Luke Skywalker lead Biggs outside of the cantina, outside of the Anchorhead bar. And he looks up and he says, uh, that's not a battle hotshot. Those ships are just sitting there, probably a freighter, a tanker. They're just refueling. He says, there was a lot of firing up there earlier, Luke says. And he says, I keep telling you, Wormy, uh, this is a friend of Biggs who steps out. The Rebel, um, the Rebel Alliance is a long way from here. I doubt if the Emperor would even fight to keep this system. Believe me, Luke, this planet is a big hunk of nothing. But in my head, I like Biggs Darklighter. I got an entire page. I got close-ups. Howard Chaykin gave me some really nice renderings of him. He and Luke have this exchange. You find out that Luke monitors, you know, what's going on up in the scars via his binoculars. And uh, we, we did get on page two, we actually did get, while the stormtroopers are storming, I forgot two panels where Luke is with his binoculars looking up in the sky, seeing all of the uh, uh, lights, you know, uh, sparkling up in space. And it says Luke Skywalker lowers his micro binoculars. Then he leaps nimbly, leaps nimbly into his newly repaired land speeder and aims the craft towards the distant town of Anchorhead, which again on page five, he arrives and he has this encounter with Biggs. Well, so as you all know, like that didn't happen. And we've all seen the footage. We know it was shot. Howard Chaykin was drawing from photographs, from still photography that had uh, had provided him. Both both Howard and Roy Thomas are on record as the fact that they did not see the film. They did not see the moving pictures. They were giving they were given tons and tons and tons of set photos. There's a last scene that occurs. Uh, <clears throat> so we we count from five again without ads. If you're checking out this original material, six, seven, and by the time we get to eight, Biggs and Luke are. Uh, saying goodbye to each other and again the cool thing about biggs and you've seen it if you've seen the the, the actual uh you, you've seen it if you've if you've seen the actual you know still photography is that he has a cool jacket he, he has a cool look he has kind of a cape he's got that mustache he's a cool looking character so i fully expected to see him now again when i saw the movie and he doesn't show up until you know the 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 yavin stuff i'm like oh in the comic he was much earlier on you know, on tattooing with Luke. In this this, this page, uh, what did I call it? It's it's page uh, page seven, five, six. No, page eight. Luke says things haven't been the same since you left tattooing, Biggs. It's been so quiet, Luke. I shouldn't tell you this, but you're the only one I can trust. And if I don't come back, I want to, I want somebody to know. He says, "What are you talking about?" I made friends at the academy, Luke. When our frigate goes to one of the central systems, we're going to make the jump and join the alliance. Join the rebellion? Are you kidding? How? Quiet down. My best friend on Beston might make us, might help us make contact. He goes, you're crazy. You could wander around forever trying to find him. Big says, I know it's a long shot, but I'm not going to wait for the Empire to draft me into service. The rebellion is spreading and I want to be on the side I believe in. And then Luke says, and I'm stuck here on Tatooine. I thought you were going to the Academy next. Get off this rock. 
He says, not likely. My uncle needs me just for one more season. I can't leave him now. Begg says, what good is all your uncle's work if he ends up a tenant slaving away for the greater glory of the empire? Well, I've got to go. I'm leaving in the morning. I guess I won't see you. Maybe someday I'll keep a lookout, Luke. Take care of yourself, Biggs. You'll always be the best friend I've got. So I read this with this extensive, I mean, three separate shots on Tatooine that do not involve uh, Luke and Biggs that I saw in the comic book. So again, you know, this is really interesting. Everything else throughout the the end of this first uh, this first issue is true to what we saw on screen. But, you know, we were... We comic book kids showed up and we were shocked because there is no Bigs light, Bigs dark lighter, you know, on Tatooine in Anchorhead. This exchange didn't happen. And and again, I need you to go back in time. Nine years old, 1977. I I was looking forward to this. Bigs was drawn cool. He looked cool. Look cool matters. And again, the fact that he when he did show up, I was I was excited that I knew who he was. Now, issue two comes out in May. Uh, a, a, a few weeks before the actual uh, film is launched on Memorial Day. So, and that is completely uh, and totally uh, true to the film, except for another killer excerpt, okay? So, in the Star Wars issue number two, uh, we, we, we have a, a very different depiction uh, of... of uh, on page on page starting on page 13 and 14 on my by my count in my originals without any ads when han is going to uh following his his encounter with greedo where uh let me tell you in case you're wondering uh han most definitely shot first and uh, and dropped greedo well han is on his way now we've seen you're going to see a version of this in the remaster editions that were released in in 97 but this very distinct looking character named Jabba the Hutt, Jabba the Hutt, uh, interrupts Han Solo. He's green with kind of really long, like Wolverine mutton chops, what long white mutton chops. He, he looks like a green monkey. He says, Han, my boy, there are times you disappoint me. Why haven't you paid me? And why did you fry a poor Greedo like that? After all we've done together. And Han says, Jabba, the next time you've got something to say with me, say to me, don't send one of your blast happy ha- happy twerps. Come see me yourself. And they have this terse standoff that continues again on page 14 in front of the Millennium Falcon. Han, Han, if only you hadn't dumped that shipment of spice. He says, you know, even I get boarded sometimes, Jabba. Again, this plays out in the, uh, in the 1997 remastered editions, except uh, Jabba is depicted the way he is when we see him in Return of the Jedi. But again, we Marvel Comics is 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 sacred to us. You know, this is the comic company of of Spider Man and Hulk and Iron Man, the Avengers, Fantastic Four, the resurgent X Men. You know, we 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 as comic fans hang on all this stuff. So if if it's in print, I'm pretty sure like this is what I'm getting. I'm I'm now attuned that, that this is Jabba the Hutt. So we are a few weeks away from Star Wars being released in theaters, and I'm seeing this green. A uh, simian-looking character with the long, kind of cheek mutton chop whiskers, somewhere between mutton chops and whiskers, and and he's in this like very, uh, he's wearing green kind of buccaneer gloves and a very fitted orange tunic, almost like a, like a orange version of what uh, Morf Tarkin is wearing. Morf, um, Grand Moff Tarkin wears, and he says, uh, "Where would Jabba says where would I be if every pilot who smuggles for me dumped his shipment at the sign?" of the first Imperial starship. That's not good business. 
Um, <clears throat> he says, I need more time. He goes, put your blasters away to his men. Jamba says, as they draw on, on Han. Han, my boy, I'm only doing this because you're the best and I need you. But if you disappoint me again, I'll put a price on your head so large that you won't be able to go near a civilized star system again for the rest of your life. Han Solo says, I'll pay you, Jamba, but not because you threaten me. I'll pay you because it's my pleasure. So again, second time that we've had a detour uh, from what we're going to be seeing. But otherwise, they are attacked by the Imperial troopers. They escape into uh, hyperspace at the end of this second issue. And the third issue uh, opens with Moff Tarkin and, and uh, Vader destroying uh, you know, Alderaan, much to... Uh, M- m- much to uh, you know, Princess Leia's dismay. So, so you've got the training on board the Millennium Falcon. You've got them getting, you know, boarding the 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 Death Star, getting getting pulled in by the tractor beam. Again, the contents of this are all very familiar to all of us. Uh, then, then once we're on the Death Star, and that that really is split between issues three and four as they make their uh, break for it. Uh, issue four great splash page with them all blasting their way through the uh through the tunnels and and attempting to get away again really uh familiar and and incredibly incredibly uh reflective of what we see on screen the battle between vader and obi-wan by the time this comes out i've already seen it on screen i'm going to tell you i enjoyed and, and, and I'll tell you, as Rob Liefeld, the little nine-year-old fan, I drew every single one of these panels. This duel is told in a about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, yeah, let's see, eight, nine, uh, ten, eleven different panels, each of them extremely memorable. I think Howard Chagan did a great job depicting this. It is more uh, um, uh, visual. It's a more visual representation of the lightsaber duel that we get between Vader and Obi-Wan. There's more crackles with the lightsabers. Howard uses all manner of you know illustrative and comic book effects, uh, great crops, cut-ups. I uh, had art classes at, at, at after-school art classes that I was being dropped off, dropped off at and and it was during those art classes that i would recreate on canvases i'd use each canvas as a panel and paint them of these howard shaken panels i really thought this was well done well but again you know issue issue four ends with them uh escaping and and we we, we get a really almost an eight page version of the the tie fighters trying to track them down as they escape for yavin uh ultimately you know the the plans are revealed at the end of Yavin in this book, by the way, when Leah comes to see Luke off from getting on the X-Wing, let me tell you something. They smooch lip to lip. This is more than the smooch, you know, when they but when they when they swing, you know, Tarzan style across the chasm. You know, and 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 there is a very romantic, uh almost gone with the wind like depiction of that kiss before they swing but then here isolated she kisses him on the lips they are lip locking may the force be with you then this is when biggs reappears after um they hold hands there's a panel of them holding hands uh and 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 they 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 give a very deep lip lock uh the issue ends with the uh type the 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 x-wing fighters the the y-wing fighters all leaving for the Death Star, and the last issue is very faithful in how it depicts what we saw on screen as they rally and shoot and destroy the Death Star, and 
Uh, they get their medals on the last page. And the Star Wars adapt, adapt, comic book adaptation is complete. Again, six issues launching April, May, June, July, August, September. Ran the entire spring summer of Marvel Comics. It was enjoyed by fans like myself who hung on each and every cover that was released, each and every image. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I redrew that Obi-Wan Darth Vader battle. It was like, you know, Darth Vader immediately. I've, I've, I've spoken of it so often on the podcast. Comic books are not novels. Novels are without pictures. Comic books need pictures. They are reliant on images. It is what has created this incredible array of Hall of Fame artists over multi, multiple decades. When something looks cool, we rally to it. Darth Vader had an immediate connection with everybody. Was he Dr. Doom-esque? Yes, he was. Yes, he absolutely was. Has he eclipsed Dr. Doom? He absolutely has. And at this time, that Dr. Doom-esque, that vibe that he gave off was so potent, was so powerful. I responded to it so much. And again, I've discussed the way everyone, all the garments, the way people were dressed, Han Solo with the vest and the holster, the cowboy, the cantina, very Western-themed. Obi-Wan, very much the spiritual monk, uh, looked like, Charlton Heston in, in, in the Ten Commandments looked like the, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Obadiah, which, whichever prophet you want him to be from the Bible. He looked exactly like a prophet from the Bible, an old school biblical figure. Um, you know, Luke with his his shirt, the way it was almost like a loose cowl with big floppy sleeves. He looked like a squire from any Arthurian legend and, and, and his brown pants and boots, uh, you know, more of a just kind of basic, rugged, again, a farm boy uh, who, who would eventually put blasters and, and lightsabers in his hand. And, and, and again, lightsabers in and of themselves and the way they were being used between Vader and Obi-Wan, it gave this flavor of samurai, this Eastern kind of influence. Again, the whole thing is East versus West. George is, is mashing up, you know, uh, all, all, all of the... Uh, you know all of the greats. He's he's mashing up Peckinpah. He's he's match, mashing up Kurosawa, Howard Shaken. I cannot underscore enough how great that he he did with the visuals. But the visual part of this uh, and some of the names, he is by far not the only artist to contribute to this six issues. There was a lot of help brought in, some super famous help that you may not have known about, and we're going to cover that as we prepare to pivot and go deeper into our Rob Topsy and get into our topics. And start isolating um, point by point why Star Wars uh, is on the Rob Topsy table this afternoon. First off, with the historical relevance of the Star Wars comic book, 1977, published by Marvel. This thing is loaded with historical relevance. This will probably be where we spend most of our time. We, we, there's just way too much to share. And if we're going to do a proper autopsy, uh, we, we, we got to you know, get into the, the, the meat of this. Roy Thomas was the top dog. He was the CEO, practically the publisher. He was running all the operations while Stan was trying to get Marvel TV and cartoons running up in Hollywood. <clears throat> now, there was a guy named Jim Galton who was running the, uh, the business affairs. So you'll hear his name during this period. But Roy Thomas re- wrote and committed his recollection of how this all came about back in 2015. And, and after I'm done with this, I'm going to show you what Stan wrote in 1978 in the intro to the Star Wars Del Rey uh, collection, the, 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 the kid size, whatever they call trade paperback uh, 
that, that collected all of Star Wars adaptations. Stan wrote a forward to that, and I'm going to share you that juxtaposing it to this. Roy starts here and says, for most Americans in their mid-40s or older, he wrote this in 2014, the year that they were entered into the Star Wars universe was 1977. And chances are, it's never left their consciousness. For me, though, it was 1975. For Roy, it was 1975. Early in that year, as a recent Marvel ex-editor living in Manhattan, I went out to dinner for the first time with George Lucas, director of the hit film American Graffiti, and his right-hand man, Charlie, also known as Charles Lippincott. Our mutual friend Ed Summer accompanied us. That was the night I first heard of this movie project George was working on called Star Wars. I didn't follow or really try to much of what they were discussing about this concept in progress, except that he had conceived it as a series of films, even if it still seemed very much an idea in search of a precise plotline. Roughly a year later, Ed called me up and said that he and Charlie would like to come over to my apartment and discuss something with me. That something turned out to be the self-same Star Wars Minus the now. Because again, it was called The Star Wars. Uh, George was starting filming over in Tunisia uh, with Alec Guinness and a bunch of unknown actors. Harrison Ford, Roy Thomas puts in parentheses. What kind of name is that? George, Charlie said, had wanted Marvel to adapt the movie as several issues of a comic book with at least a couple of the issues on sale before the film was projected in 1977 debut. He wanted me to be the writer because of my success with steering the comic book version of Conan the Barbarian towards great success. Again, Roy really kind of stumbled into, if you go to my very first Sword and Sorcery podcast, and it's called Sword and Sorcery, and it's, it's really how Conan opened the doors for Sword and Sorcery and transformed the, 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 the comics industry for another decade or more. It was Marvel's first big, ginormous licensing success, and Roy indeed was behind all that. He was just, when I say fell into it, he was looking for another lesser known property. He was told he couldn't get it and then said, well, why don't you try for Conan, which he thought was out of his league to start with. So, so Roy really nailed it on that one. So again, this is George. George specifically isolating, according to Charlie Lippincott and these guys, that they wanted Roy because of his Conan success. Roy says, I was flattered until I learned that Marvel's publisher and guru, Stan Lee, perhaps that very afternoon had nixed the proposal. I told the guys that if Stan and President Jim Galton had turned them down, that there was nothing that I'd be able to do to help. I was now only a writer-editor handling two Conan titles. In 1975, Roy had stepped down from being the editor-in-chief, and they went through this period of like every six to eight months, Marvel had a different quote-unquote editor-in-chief until they locked into Jim Shooter in like 77. So This is a very strange period for them, but obviously Roy was such a figurehead of the company that they were, they thought this is how we convince the people who keep turning us down to do it because Roy had always been viewed in the comic book world and anyone who went, you know, around Marvel's, uh, who, who, who was, was, was in Marvel's orbit. They knew that Roy was the handpicked successor to Stan and that the only person that could kind of Stan whisper was Roy, but Roy's like, I, I'm flattered, but, uh, you know, I really, I really can't, can't help you in, in this regard. Roy said, I'm writing two Conan titles. I'm writing The Invaders. I'm, I'm doing another comic book or two. Um, but still, Charlie Lippincott wanted me to tell the story of the movie. And, to sh- and he showed me a series of beautiful paintings. He called them production sketches that went alongside the story. Out of politeness and mild curiosity, I said, okay, but I wasn't, it wasn't likely going to change my mind. 
and 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 it wasn't going to have the result they wanted, which was Roy marching into Marvel and trying to rethink, uh, to talk Stan into rethinking his position on this. Uh, <clears throat> now here's where Roy mentions what I mentioned earlier that there was rumors that George had really wanted Warren Publications, who had they were they were Warren Publications were like horror publishers. They had black and white magazines, creepy. Uh, you know, they, 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 uh, Vampirilla and, and, uh, Roy says, had I learned that, that these Warren rumors that they really wanted Warren publications and they had been turned down, um, I, I might not have even listened to their spiel. He goes, you know, Marvel is, is not anybody's sloppy seconds. Okay. So again, this is all written in the omnibus forward that Marvel released in 2015 when they got the license back from Dark Horse. Roy then says, still, listen, I did. Now, if you can imagine hearing all those names and concepts for the first time, cascading it, you one right after another, you get an, some idea of how bomb- bombarded I felt. Luke Skywalker, at that time called Luke Starkiller. Darth Vader. And he says, or did Charlie say Dark Vader? He said, R2-D2, C-3PO, he, he, Obi-Wan Kenobi. He goes through all these names, bearded dube in a hermit's robe, you know, um, a, 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 a Wookiee. He's just absorbing all this. I'm skipping down to about the fifth paragraph. He goes, it was a scene of two guys with ray guns, one an Earthman type and a pointy-eared alien with a tail about to slap leather in what looked like a saloon amid otherworldly aliens and armored soldiers that Charlie called stormtroopers. This was the scene that he responded to. I'll do it, he says. Charlie and Ed were naturally a bit surprised by my sudden change of heart. I uh, I deemed to explain to him. Uh, <clears throat> they kept referring to Star Wars as science fiction, which was a genre that we had a relatively mediocre to poor sales track record. And he said DC reflecting DC Strange Adventures and, and their space books as well. They just weren't very, they didn't have great, uh, sales response with fans or retailers. Roy says, this looks more like space opera. It has a Western in aliens clothing. I, I, I devoured that kind of stuff uh, as a kid in, in, in a strip called Planet Comics. He goes, we might just stand a chance of selling this if, if it's this space opera and not science fiction. He says, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can get Stan to put this on the schedule, Roy says. George Lucas had specifically asked for Howard Chaykin to be the artist based on some of the recent science fiction style work he had been doing. I didn't much like having my artist picked out for me in advance, but I did like Howard's work and we were buddies given the pub crawling that we had been doing in New York with other friends. So I figured what the hell, if Howard Chaykin is willing, then, then that's fine with me. So as it happens, Roy goes to see Stan and Jim Galton and uh, got them to go along with the Star Wars. And uh, he would be re- the writer editor of the series that that was requested by Lucasfilms. Uh, he's he said at that point I then handed over a ton of the workload to Howard Chaykin, who had to pace out the story into the six segments, working from not only the latest version of the screenplay but also the photos that had been provided and artistic references that 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 Fox and Lucasfilm had had provided them. Uh, by sheer coincidence, Roy made arrangements in mid-1976 to move from New York City to Los Angeles, and he was moving the weekend of July 4th. I dropped by George Lucas's offices and met the receptionist who later would become Miss, Mrs. Mark's, Mrs. Mark Hamill. I'm, uh, not to mention, I met actor Harrison Ford. 
uh, he he goes on to say, we didn't know what George, that George was making a number of last-minute changes to several of the early scenes in the movie, which would lead to us, Marvel Comics, receiving irate letters from readers who couldn't wrap their hands around the fact that the comic book was not 100% reflecting what happened on the silver screen. Howard himself had to have help from others to finish that issue because he could not keep ahead of the relentless monthly schedule that was uh, required. He said, for me, Roy Thomas, the highlights of working on Star Wars were refusing to let Marvel circulation director coerce me into adapting the film in only one or two issues instead of the six that I had arranged. He was sure Marvel was going to take a bath on this series. I told him I would drop the project if he wanted, even though I was George's personal choice but I would not cut the series down to five issues, let alone one or two. He went away muttering and Marvel did not, and, and, and um, excuse me, he went away muttering and Marvel soon did take a bath, an Uncle Scrooge style bath of money. A tour of the big barn somewhere in the LA San, San Fernando Valley, Valley where they filmed the Death Star sequences using what looked like a million little Aurora model, model uh, kit stuck together on a long flat table. They managed to make look like a screen. They made look like on screen a spherical artificial planet. These are him saying his highlights. He's just giving bullet points. So that that going to the big barn and seeing that laid out was one of his highlights. Being flown uh, north for a February 77 screening of a rough cut of Star Wars near uh, San Anselmo, California. It was, a, it was hard to follow that particular uh, cut of the film. Many of the special effects had not been done yet. Darth Vader was just big David Prowse talking muffled with a thick, thick Scottish brogue through an even thicker helmet. And the action sequence in which Han and Luke were ta- are attacking the TIE fighters after they escaped, after they escaped from the Death Star consider, consisted of, Scott, of shots consisted of shots of heroes blasting away intersped with black and white aerial World War II dogfight footage. Uh, being at a party just prior to the film's actual opening where the only people that I knew were my date, Charlie Lippincott, his girlfriend, uh, Carol Wolarski, and Harrison Ford. Ford didn't seem to know many of the folks there, that, there either and must have recognized me from our brief encounter at George Lucas's office. So he came over to where my date and I were sitting, squatted down in his haunches while we all ate our ice cream and responded to sincere compliments about his work in the film by muttering that he could use all the help he could get for his so-called career, in quotes. Little did he or I or anyone know how much that so-called career was about to get helped from Star Wars. As it turned out, the first couple of issues of Marvel's Star Wars comic book sold quite well, albeit with a smallish print run, even before the movie's May debut. Once the film premiered, of course, of course, it was a runaway hit. The comic book was no longer of any importance to George Lucas. Star Wars, of course, created considerable uh, importance for Marvel Comics. Evidently, Roy says, as I did not learn until some years later, it kept the company solvent during a very bad patch while President Jim Galton was trying to turn his fortunes around. He did, God bless him, and then Editor-in-Chief both went on the record saying Star Wars saved Marvel Comics. Star Wars saved the company at that time. It was nice to be associated with a big Hollywood hit as well as a comic book smash until the time came to carry the story past the ending of the film, and that's where the trouble started. And that's where I'm going to end this right now because this wraps up his recollection and, and his high points of what he liked about uh, his association with Star Wars in 1977. Again, the key, the key elements there were the book 
so, so, so what this isn't telling you and what needs to be said is, let me tell you something. April 12th, 1977 was when the actual 32-page four-color comic came out. It was quickly reprinted. Marvel split up issues one, two, three, and issues four, five, six into two treasury size editions. We've covered the treasury size editions here on the podcast many times, like 12 by 15 big super duper comic books. I have all of them right to the side of my desk here. They then eventually, a few months later, those were a buck ninety-five each. Then they put a two fifty two dollars and fifty cent treasury edition that collected all six. The entire story, the complete. Complete in one issue, it says over its banner. It had a brand new cover, brand new back cover. The the issue, the the editions that had one, two, three, and the editions that had four, five, six also had brand new covers. Did I collect them all? I collected them all. Those were released. Marvel Special Edition, uh, number one, two, three, 1977. Marvel Special Edition, uh, number three, was released in 1978. And uh, the, the, they, they went on to re- reprint it again in the 80s. With all three of them, they just kept uh, this in print. This comic book, again, on record, not um, counting all the trade paperbacks as special treasury or special editions, was reprinted one, two, three, four, five times prior to 2015. And that's not counting all the second prints and all the third prints of each edition. Marvel found something. The Stan Lee intro. That is in this pocketbook. That's the word that was escaping me earlier. Pocketbook. It is a black and white uh, reprinting by Del Rey, which was a big uh, publisher at the time. They produced, this is only from the black and white line art. No color. The whole thing is uh, really nice. Fits in your hands. I had Howard Chaykin sign it in the summer of 2015. Knowing that new Star Wars stuff was coming. I had um, discovered this in my collection. Again, in my vast storage uh, units and and had discovered it and wanted uh, wanted wanted Howard to sign it and of of particular uh, interest here is that Roy Thomas uh, when I mentioned that, oh, I actually took to Facebook with this back then in 2015 way way before I had a podcast and Roy Thomas came up to me stopped me at a convention a few years later it was 2016 2017 a couple of years later at at Rhode Island Comic Con it's like Rob. When you put that up on Facebook, I forgot all about that. Like, like th- those were great insights. Thank you for identifying it as you did. Here it is. Stan Lee, introduction. I could have, it could have bombed. It was a comic book concept dressed up for the screen. It was good guys and bad guys, spaceships, blasters, costumes, magic, planets, perils. But despite all of that, or because, or perhaps because of it, it worked. Worked. It simply became the most sensational, highest grossing media event of all time. Therefore, what could be more proper, more apt, more totally fitting than to present the magic of Star Wars in comic book form, and thus we come full circle? This is written by Stanley. This forward just says introduction. It says, "How well do I remember the day that it started?" Writer editor Roy Thomas told me he had heard of a new movie being produced, a science fiction extravaganza called Star Wars. He suggested that Marvel Comics do a comic book version of the film. I, in my infinite wisdom, tossed cold water all over the proposal, feeling that the title was lacking in both warmth and appeal, and fearing that the world was already was hardly ready for another ray gun blasting space opera. However, when Roy Thomas mentioned that Alex Guinness was to be featured as one of the leads in this production, I yielded, having always been a frantic fan of the fantastically versatile performer. And that's how we happened to score so towering a cultural triumph. 
and how mankind was spared a future without an illustrated version of Star Wars. He says, as soon as I could, I saw the movie myself and my initial reaction was one of total astonishment. I could not believe the special effects, the scope, the panorama, the sheer overwhelming power of the undertaking. But the thing that amazed me the most was the love that it had was, <laughs> but the thing that amazed me the most was the love that had been poured into it. This was no campy treatment, hastily thrown together and make a few bucks and get a quarter or two. George Lucas loved this theme, just as he had loved the comic books and the early films of his childhood days. His love shown through in every scene, in every situation, every dazzling concept. Nobody watches Star Wars alone. You find yourself sharing the experience with the man who created it. And now you'll also share it with the gang from Marvel. We love it too. And why wouldn't we? After all, who can have a greater appreciation of C-3PO, R2-D2, Lord Darth Vader, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Chewbacca, the Jedi Knights, than the blushing bullpen that brought you Spider-Man, the Hulk, Captain America, Doctor Strange, Silver Surfer, as well as the evil Doctor Doom Galactus and the evil and the even deadlier Red Skull. To you, the world of Alderaan is the mysterious home of Princess Leia in a far-off galaxy, while to us, it's practically our home turf. We've talked enough somewhere out there, far beyond the farthest reaching <clears throat> galaxies of our own imagination, a universe awaits, and Star Wars beckons. Excelsior, Stan Lee. Stan goes on the record, you know? I didn't want anything to do with this. I pulled, I, I poured um, <clears throat> cold water. There's a preface following the introduction. And he, Roy talks about his own, uh, this is a much more truncated version. He says, uh, he was convinced with the aid of Lucasfilm Media Projects Director Charlie Lippen, Lippincott that adapting from the script and stills into a comic book form of a movie, which was still far from completed uh, and which we had never seen, uh, would be perfect for a comic book. He uh, he said, even the frustration of seeing characters that we had faithfully introduced, such as Luke's boyhood chum, Biggs Darklighter, disappear forever into a cinematic limbo for the sake of a vi more viable running time. Yes, it was definitely all worth it. Long live Star Wars on the screen, in novelizations, and in comics. We deserve it, we the millions who have seen and or who will continue to see it. After all, we've waited a long, long time. Thank you, George Lucas. That's from Roy Thomas. So those are the recollections, again, kind of the skimming of the fact that, you know, Roy was persuaded, uh, got, got Stan on board, got Jim Galton on board. I love that because, again, I'm going to tell you, you can feel that the actual six issues is stretched somewhat. I'll, I'll go to the counter of the, the, the reason the person was probably coming and saying, let's do two double-sized issues. Marvel did a lot of giant-sized, king-sized annuals and specials back in that period of like 1973 to 1978. They loved giant-sized, king-sized. Giant-sized X-Men is what relaunched the X-Men. You, you had Avengers, Fantastic Four, X-Men, Spider-Man. They'd get both. They'd get a king-size special and a giant-size annual. And they would say, giant-size, king-size. Those were supposed to rally your interest more you know, uh, more pages, more story, more art for a, a slightly uptick in price. Okay. So I can see Marvel going, why don't we just do two of these? Having looked through it again, revisited the actual comic books that came out in 1977, the fifth and sixth issues are, the, are, are where the most of the padding is playing out the space scenes, adding more panels, stretching them out. But nonetheless, those six issues, which then became immediately two treasury size editions. Remember what I, what I said, how I opened with the Gemcos, the Treasuries, the Woolworths, the, the, the May Companies, the Sears, their magazine departments, 
everywhere had these. If they didn't have the comic books, they had these giant treasury editions. And then because they're six, Marvel was able, able to package these. Uh, and they did again a three and three pack. You had to buy one, two, three, and four, five, six in Whitman was a producer of bagged comics uh, that would hang also off racks in all these department stores. That's how they sold them. You didn't have a, you know, uh, uh, a spinner rack like you did in the liquor store or or the market or the 7-Eleven where you could individually buy them. Both Marvel, DC, Charlton, they had all done these Whitman sealed packages. So you had to buy it with the cardboard at the top, which provide, provided the means to which hang them on a hanger on, 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 a, on a turnstile. And you as a kid would, you know, grab those off, sealed. You had to buy it, purchase it before you could rip it open and get access to your comics. But Marvel went all in on two different packs. One, two, three, three, four, uh, one, two, three, and then four, five, and six as separate individual packs. The marketing department fleeced this as far as like peeling every last nickel off, off of Star Wars in, in regards to a, a, a published item. And this is back when magazine circulations and comic book circulations were, were very impressive. Uh, now, mind you, this saved Marvel from the implosion that DC would, would face in one year's time. Do I believe that Marvel would have headed towards their own implosion? I have done a dedicated episode. The entire hour is dedicated to the, all of the nuts and bolts. DC announced an expansion of their line because that's how they thought they could save their comic book division. But because of the publishing and the distribution wars and the printing uh, difficulties of the time, they had to announce instead a retraction, a receding of the line, what they called and what has been called in comics history as the DC implosion. Marvel staved off the DC implosion, their own implosion, because Star Wars gave them millions and millions and millions of dollars to keep moving forward, to expand to try new things, to pour more money into talents that we would come to know as John Byrne, Frank Miller, Walt Simonson, uh, more more works from the greats. Uh, what, what I really do attribute to the fact that, that this to the fact that um, they were able to pursue even more wide variety of titles. Certainly, every 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 studio came to them for adaptations after this. That's why you got Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I mean, you even got Xanadu. Yes, Xanadu. You got Raiders of the Lost Ark. You got all of these. Um, I mean, and, and everything in between. You got Dragon Slayer. Uh, you, you, you got Last Starfighter. I mean, Marvel became the de facto. Even Star Trek. They got Star Trek circa the 1979 release of the Star Trek motion picture. This not only saved them from an implosion, it expanded Marvel, which is another reason that they began to further separate. They were already selling better than DC. That had been achieved in the mid-70s. And now, as DC retracts, Marvel expands all on the back of the millions and millions and millions of dollars in 1977 dollars, in 1977 dollars, that allowed them to create complete and utter uh, separation from their rival. I personally don't know of a greater historical significance than, that, than like saving Marvel comics. I, I think that, that maybe, you know, paints Star Wars as the most important comic Marvel ever produced, published. Its historical relevance is, is ridiculous. Let me read. I've, I've read you Stan Lee. I've read you Roy Thomas. Now I'm going to read you Jim Shooter, who went on to be Marvel's uh, editor-in-chief and took them to all new sales heights 
the crossovers uh, of Secret Wars. He greenlit Frank Miller on Daredevil, Walt Simonson on Thor, John Byrne on Fantastic Four. Uh, initiated all manner of hugely successful programs, which is literally introduced a, a second golden age. The fans who are my age were there and saw the brilliance that he unleashed over and over again. I, I have I have deemed him as the best, most important, most consequential uh, editor-in-chief Marvel Comics ever had. Well, he wrote about this in 2011. Roy Thomas saved Marvel. He, he writes uh, in his blog, July 5th, 2011, as previously mentioned, Marvel was a mess throughout the 1970s. And during my two years as, as associate editor, prior to my becoming editor-in-chief, from 1976 through the end of 77, almost every book of Marvel was late. There were unscheduled reprints, fill-ins, and we still just plain missed entire issues here and there. Many books, despite my best efforts to shore up the bottom line, had become unreadable. Not merely bad, unreadable. Almost all were less than they could or should be. Truth be told, there were. This is now me speaking. Just to come alongside this, as a fan, you'd be in the middle of a of a Avengers three. Uh, you'd be in 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 the middle of an Avengers saga, and instead of part four that you were promised, you got two villains that had nothing to do with the story that you were consuming. And 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 then at the end of the second month, it said we'll be back to our regular continuity next month. So so you know maybe you're reading something in May, June, July. And then August and September, it completely disappeared. In some books, uh, you literally, you literally would get a reprint. You'd be like, wait, I'm picking up the Fantastic Four and, and it's an issue from the 60s. There was, you know, I say all the time, one of the, um, uh, I, I say all the time that uh, that best thing the best thing about those that, that that period comics of that era was that we didn't know it was coming around the door it was all a mystery there was no previous catalogs you know there was no real big you know uh marketing to to, to convince you to order x amount of copies ahead like there is now for retailers now because retailers want to know every aspect of what they're ordering and they have every right to know that i understand it's on the publisher to give them that and still keep mystery it's it's a it's a tight wire uh for sure but back then I mean, this was just uh, just rogue territory, which is why you would get a brand new cover on a Fantastic Four, whatever number it was, or an Avengers, or a Defenders, or a Thor, and it was a reprint, or it was a fill-in job that had nothing to do with the cliffhanger, okay? So this is what Jim Shooter is referring to here. So he, he's talking about his, 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 uh, his difficulty. He said... Uh, he compliments Roy, Roy Thomas's work during this point, this part, the, the, um, during this period, that he was more than carrying his part. Len Wein as well. He said, um, "We can debate." He goes, "We can debate the quality of all the books at Marvel at length. However, what cannot be debated is that the sales were bad and falling. Oh, I'm sorry, that the sales were bad and falling. It was almost all newsstand driven by then." This was before the advent of the direct market. The comics overall were break-even at best. Upstairs, the cheesy non-comic magazine department was losing millions. It seemed like the entire company as a whole was in the midst of a death spiral. Again, this is Jim Shooter's words from his 2011 blog. Then Roy Thomas proposed we license some upcoming science fiction movie called Star Wars and we publish an adaptation. Jeers and derision ensued. None of it within Roy's earshot, of course. Eventually, he moved to California. The prevailing wisdom at the time was, sci-fi doesn't sell. This Star Wars thing seems hokey. 
and will likely be folly, F-O-L-L-Y. I love that word, folly at best. Um, By the way, the prevailing wisdom also had decreed Westerns don't sell, romance doesn't sell, fantasy doesn't sell, female characters don't sell. And the more and more you get the drift. What sold, the prevailing wisdom said, were male-dominated superheroes and male-dominated superhero groups. Marquee stars like Spider-Man or Fantastic Four are not third stringers like Daredevil. There had to be lots of action against marquee supervillains inter- interlaced with some ounces of soap opera. But that was it. That was the kids in Fudge, Nebraska demanded. Period. The great proponents of this prevailing wisdom were Marv Wolfman and Len Wein. As I said in an earlier post, a bunch of us hung out a lot after work, including me, uh, along with them, other staffers, and we talked shop a lot. Huh, hanging out, doing what? Well, there were a lot of after-work dinners, poker games, visits to bookstores. Marvin Lynn were physically unable to pass any bookstore that wandered into their path. Various geek activities, for instance. Marv had the entire Prisoner TV series on film and hosted an all-night Prisoner Marathon at his place one Friday night. That, that's the sort of things that we were doing after hours. Anyway, when the prevailing wisdom reared its head, as in Len or Marv saying, Westerns don't sell, or whatever, I would usually counter with, show me a good one. That generally sparked jeers, derision, and debate. One of the counters to my challenge was, and I am not making this up, I cannot write fiction well enough to make this up, good doesn't sell. Good in parentheses. General proof was Warlock is good, but it doesn't sell. Warlock at the time was being written and drawn by Jim Starlin. My counter to that was, while each of these things, well, my counter to that was, while each of those examples had good, even excellent things about them, they also had negatives. Uh, even with Warlock, which was sometimes very daunting, it was colored murkily, it was too dense, it was overwritten, it had too many panels. I would have loved to have seen a Warlock in a premium format with, with room to rock and a little more accessible. I don't mean simplified, I don't mean dumbed down, I don't mean homogenized or compromised in any way. I meant more accessible, easier to enter into, easier to hop aboard the ride. I'm not suggesting more Marvel mainstream, more, more Marvel mainstream, not necessary. Anyway, there was a lot of opposition to Star Wars. Even Stan Lee wasn't keen on the idea. Even I was not. I had no prejudice against science fiction, but wasting time on an, adapt, on an adaptation of a movie with a dumb title described as a Western in outer space. I was told, don't know for sure, that George Lucas came to Marvel's offices to meet with Stan and help convince him that we could license Star Wars. I was told that Stan kept him waiting for 45 minutes in the reception room. Roy would know this for sure, but if so, it still reflects the mood at the time. As an aside, Lucas, by the way, again, and as I I was told, and I'm pretty sure this is true, was a partner in Super Snipe Comic Book Emporium, a comic book shop on the Upper East Side, a clue to his persistent interest in comic books and the comic book adaptation. I do not know how Roy Roy Thomas got it done. I was just the associate editor. I'm not privy to much of the wrangling that went on, but Roy got the deal done and we published Star Wars. The first two of our six-issue adaptation came out well in advance of the movie. Driven by the advanced marketing for the movie, sales were good. Then about the time the third issue shipped, the movie was released and sales made a jump into hyperspace. Star Wars, the movie, stayed in theaters forever, it seemed. Not since the Beatles had I seen such a cultural phenomenon of such absolute power. The comics sold and sold and sold. He 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 states this three times. I am writing reading verbatim what Jim Shooter is saying. The comic sold and sold and sold. We printed the adaptation in every possible format we could. They all sold and sold and sold. In the most conservative terms, 
It is inarguable that the success of the Star Wars comics was a significant factor in Marvel's continued survival through a couple of very difficult years through 1978. And in my mind, the truth is stated in the title of this piece, which again is called Roy Thomas Saved Marvel. So you got three different figureheads who are on record. Jim Shooter had nothing to do with the success of Star Wars. Goes out of his way to tell you that that was not his call. He opposed it. He has no problem saying this was a huge success for Marvel that kept us adrift, kept us going, kept us moving forward. Roy Thomas says Jim Galton informed him. It, 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 he, he, he compares the riches that they made to Scrooge McDuck's gold that he dances upon. You know, his, 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 his vaults. This uh, Star Wars comic turned around every possible fortune for Star Wars and they just continued and went monthly. And that's a story for another time in regards to historical relevance. Those six issues, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to go alongside what Jim said. He said the movie played forever. It did. It kept, you know, getting special edition re-releases, but it really didn't move, leave theaters for like 14 straight months. The comic book had the exact same shelf life, even while they were on Star Wars 7, 8, 9, 10, beyond, creating original adventures outside what we saw in the adaptation. The adaptation kept getting new. Again, the Del Rey book, which, which as I told you, it is stands forward in this. This is published in 1978. The Treasury editions, when they collected everything, is 1978, because again, they had the 123 edition, the 456 edition. They got all the sales of that out of the way, then they compiled them. Um, what I, w- w- which was right around the holidays, post holidays, went into 1978. Star Wars, huge historical significance in regards to its financial impact and long term uh, legacy for the success of Marvel in a very difficult time. Another couple really historical relevances that this book had, I already covered the Biggs Dark Lighter. Again, Roy Thomas. Talks about the letters that they would receive, like, "Hey, what are you doing? Putting these characters in the comics? They're not in the, in the movie in this way." Movie readers, I mean, uh, comic readers were, like I said, they, we were a little confused. We took everything Marvel did as, uh, as, as I mean, what they put in print was golden. I mean, we 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 hung on everything that they shared with us. So, how could these important pages, these three Luke Skywalker pages, where he has this? fishing cap and goggles and he has his friend Biggs Darklater and there's so much background given to the rebellion. Where is that in the movie? Was this ever even filmed? I I thought that for years. I had no idea when finally the science fiction magazines would show glimpses of the photos and when they realized, ooh, we got some sneaky great stuff to tease our readers and sell our magazines with. That's when I was like, oh my gosh. Uh the early uh versions of Jabba the Hutt as this, you know, uh green Simeon character uh, who was nothing like the the blobby globby character that we would eventually encounter, and yet we would hear about Jabba from the beginning, and so a very different depiction of 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 of, uh, of Jabba, and then of course the the romantic uh, aspect, the the repeated smooching, the repeated smooching between Leah and uh, Luke would would you know completely give us a, a little bit of a different pivot. So, so the historical relevance of the comic book adaptation gave us glimpses into characters that we still haven't truly seen edited in. I mean, Big's Dark Darklighter is 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 um 
you know, unless I missed that special edition, I've seen the extra footage outside of the film. But man, hopefully someday, you know, put it all together, get it out there. Um, I, you know, I've, I've never been the biggest Job of the Hut guy. So, and maybe it's because I encountered this Job of the Hut and it imprinted itself on me, my, my nine-year-old brain so much that this is the one that I expected that I never really took to the big fat slug. But uh, historical relevance, whoo, baby. Star Wars, the comic book 1977 six-issue adaptation is full of it. Creative pedigrees is our is our next topic that we're going to tackle given uh, this amazing Star Wars 1977 comic book, Rob Topsy. What can you say about Roy Thomas? His epic uh, contributions to Marvel Comics, his Avengers run, which yielded us the great Ultron stories, which uh, introduced all manner of killer characters and situations. And uh, I mean, really, when you look at the age of Ultron, much of that storyline, uh, even though I, I, I didn't love the actual movie, but that, that is a big Roy Thomas moment right there. Uh, Roy Thomas wrote all manner of great, amazing comic books for Marvel Comics. He is literally guys like Chris Claremont, even as recently as this last weekend when they were both at the Kansas City Comic Con. Royce, uh, Chris Claremont says he's intimidated talking to Roy because Roy was the writer that, that influenced him. Uh, I, I grew up reading a lot of Roy's stuff. It was either already in reprints, his earliest stuff, or his most current stuff was still playing out. I would never miss an issue of Conan the Barbarian. It was one of my favorite top five comic books during my young period. I could not get enough of the, the Hiberian age, Hyborian age of, of, of my barbaric warrior, and Roy was always at the helm uh, alongside amazing talents uh his he, he was nicknamed roy the boy uh when he because he looked so young and and when you look back and see pictures of him in the late 60s early 70s as he followed stan and became the uh figurehead at marvel and the guy calling all the shots and the de facto eic publisher uh roy roy just his accomplishments are are legendary numerous he directed uh the creative team in the hulk to put you know the uh Wolverine into, in, in, into the Hulk in that now legendary Hulk saga with Wendigo and gave, gave birth to Wolverine with a creative team of Len Wein, Herb Trimp. He was a pioneer greenlighting and, and putting forth the, the effort to bring the giant-sized, all the all-new X-Men together, brought them to life. He, his accomplishments are ridiculous, but I'm not sure he ever did anything that sold better than this, right? Star Wars. It's hard to adapt films and TV projects. I did it when I was at Extreme Studios Maximum Press. We adapted Battlestar Galactica in in what I would say one of the simplest uh, agreements and overtures I've ever had in regards to a company back and forth. And it was still not without its, um, you know, difficulties in getting things passed. And it was a dead property. They even said, we're happy to license this dead property. Nothing was going on with Battlestar Galactica. This is almost, you know, a decade uh you know a decade prior to 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 the sci-fi channels relaunching so i know i know how how tricky it is and roy thomas navigated all of it and absolutely wrote the hell out of star wars as to howard chaken the illustrator of the entire movie adaptation at least from the penciling layout breakdown standpoint i mean i've done an entire podcast on howard uh it probably was a year too late he is a seminal influence on an entire generation that followed, along with the Walt Simonsons, the Jim Starlins, the Frank Millers, the John Burns. Uh, I, I'm probably 
the Walt Simonsons, whoever, whoever else I'm, I'm leaving out, or, or if I just repeated a name, forgive me. Howard, just huge stylistic uh, impact on, on comic books. And I think that he would tell you, I've read in interviews, this was not the you know, most favorite job. It was not the most uh, exciting work that he ever produced. But as a fan, as someone who received it, Maybe it was a work for hire. Maybe it was just like, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, this is, this is a year's worth of work. Uh, he did a phenomenal job from, from my standpoint as a nine-year-old absorbing these comics at the same time. Cause you got to understand, like, imagine a world that there is no a first, first, no iPhone. I know, I know, I know the audience of raw observations may not be in the, in the teens, the, the, the twenties, but I mean, we're talking no no VCRs. There was no way to record anything on VHS. If you saw it once, that's all you saw it. You didn't get a VHS recorder for at least three more years. That's a long time. And that's, that's the first of those. That's the beta, the beta tapes. I mean, again, I've watched all of this technology emerge. I was born my earliest, my, my, my youth. We, we were you know, a, a middle-income family. We had a black and white television. Many of you may have had a black and white television. We had the rabbit ears, the antennas that you had to adjust. Guys my age, like John Favreau, in, in the movie business, they talk about this, and 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 I I connect with them immediately because I'm like, oh yeah, okay. There's someone else who can relate to this. No computers, you know. No, uh, I mean, a, a digital calculator was like considered a, a, a really big deal, and uh, no video game consoles. You're you're. You went and saw a movie, you absorbed that movie, you went, you went home with that movie, and then if you had comic books or magazines to relive the experience, and, and people have always told me, I've told this story, like, how did I even know I was an artist? How did I even know I had the talent to draw? It was when all my friends would gather after seeing Star Wars, and we were so excited, and we'd all get, you know, drawing sheets of paper and art supplies, whether it was my house or my friend's house. And we're like, oh, let's all draw our favorite character from Star Wars. And everyone would go away for like 30, 40 minutes and we'd all draw and then we'd compare our, 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 our pictures. And I'm like, why is my Wookiee the only one that looks like Chewbacca? Like, that's when you go, oh, I, I can draw what I see. I can draw, you know, from memory something. Because again, it was a way that we got together and we celebrated what we dug. We, we, we drew it. There wasn't enough coloring books. There wasn't enough sticker books. I remember when the Star Wars trading cards came out, my buddy and I pulled our allowance money and we bought an entire box sealed at the liquor store. We talked to the guy. He said he'd hold one for us. We got it. We went home on my front yard and on my front lawn in like September, October of 1977. And we divvied up the packs and then we opened them all individually and it was a ritual. And then we traded them all. So these comic books mattered. They were part of the extension of the experience. And Howard Chaikin's illustrations, his storytelling, his breakdowns, uh, this entire book is so gorgeous. But here's the deal. Howard, his art is phenomenal. The only one of these issues that he did the entire pencils and inks on, and it's incredibly impressive, especially if you have this Del Rey black and white book that just gives you the line art. It is a treasure to me. Uh, he only did the very first issue entirely uh with his own pen and ink. And it's fantastic. Whether it's the battle with the Tuscan Raiders uh, that I've already, you know, uh, displayed, or uh, I mean, discussed with you how it was displayed. You know, the Tuscan, it, it ended with this panel with the Tuscan Raider over his shoulder, lifting up his, his, uh, what's it called? Uh, the, is it the Gal, 
Gaddafi. Oh, guys, I'm, I, I, some of you are are uh, pronouncing it right now. Gadurfi, Gadurfi, the 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 sand people's formidable weapon. He's about to drive it into Luke. Luke's, you know, in a dramatic shot. Uh, the the illustrations are fantastic. Grand Moff, Tar- Grand Moff Tarkin, Darth Vader. As I've already told you, how cool Biggs Dark Lighter looked. The stormtroopers, the Jedi's, the space stuff. So. As far as creative pedigree, we're going to cut it off right here with Roy Thomas and Howard Chicken because the very next segment, Brush with Greatness, is going to delve into all the other artists that contributed to Star Wars and made it so special. And that is where we pick up with Brushed with Greatness. This particular Brushed with Greatness uh, segment of the Rob Topsy is such a joy to, to discuss because... The second issue sees the arrival of one Steve Lealoa. Rob, who's Steve Lealoa? Okay, for for me and my crowd, okay, cool. For anybody, he's an amazing illustrator. Uh, He took over in the the early 80s, he took over a book called Spider-Woman that was being written by Chris Claremont, who was writing X-Men. And his first couple issues had the X-Men in it. Siren, Juggernaut, Black Tom, Storm, Colossus. It's phenomenal. I even have the black and white essentials that they reprinted of Spider-Man, Spider, excuse me, Spider-Woman with Steve Lealoa's just line art. Um, it hit like a ton of bricks. He was, I thought, the next big hot artist in comics. He had been doing some inking, as, as, as I'm going to share with you here, which was years before. He had been doing some inking, some embellishing. He has inked John Romita Jr. on X-Men. He has inked Mark Silvestri on X-Men. He is an Im- incredible embellisher. The reason Steve Lealoa couldn't do a monthly book is, is, is why anybody can't do a monthly book. It's time. It's the commitment. It's hitting those deadlines. It's doing a 30-page book that I mentioned at this time. Spider-Woman was also bi-monthly. So he had the time to produce it, but to get it out any faster, he just couldn't. Super sweet guy. Met him a number of times. Soft-spoken. Ridiculously talented. Uh, has has in, in all my interactions, for, for about 30 years, he was in the Bay Area. Uh, ridiculously, again, just ridiculously talented illustrator artist. Uh, there's no st- John Romita Jr., Mark Silvestri, Howard Chaikin. There, there is no three further apart pencilers than the th- those three that I've just explained to you in, in, in regards to how they draw, what they draw, the way they, uh, the, the, the angular uh, approach they have, the rendering approach. Mark is much more of a renderer. Howie, Howard Chaikin has a much more, uh, I would say, uh, crisp, bold line art. And then Ramita Jr. is is very blocky and almost like a a a twenty first century, in the late twentieth century kind of Jack Kirby in his body structure, the squareness of it all. And Steve Lealoa comes in on each and every one of them and applies his amazing uh, brush and and pen technique. I believe that Lucasfilm wanted more of an adherence to the physical features maybe the, the the resemblance of the actors in the film because it picks up immediately. In issue two, on page two, his Obi-Wan, his Luke Skywalker almost resemble photorealistic interpretations resembling more Alan Guinness and Mark Hamill. The immediate impact of Steve, Steve Lalo, I mean, it's it's on the textures of the the cloaks, the outfits, the gowns, the tech, and then the faces are incredible. 
There is uh, page five of this book has a close up of Carrie Fisher as the droid comes to put the needle in her in that interrogation scene, and it looks exactly like Carrie Fisher. Uh, Grand Grand Moff Tarkin. Oh my gosh! I mean, all, all of these uh, characters suddenly are looking exactly like uh, like the actors that portrayed them. Cushing. Uh, Guinness, Hamill. There is a page of a close-up of Alec Guinness that is so beautifully rendered uh, in in the uh, in the third. Oh my gosh! There's a close-up of Tarkin uh, on page two of the third issue. There is all these different close-ups on Han Solo, on Alec Guinness, but the rendering that Leia Loa suddenly puts over Howard Chaikin's bold pencils, layouts, breakdowns. The word lush comes to mind. Okay, it is. So page issue three, one, uh, Star Wars number three. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten by my count without ads. There is a close-up of Obi-Wan where he tells them that he's going to be breaking from the party as they explore the Death Star, he's going to go try and turn the signal off. He says, I must go alone. It is the the line work. I have looked at this for years. I have looked at this in an omnibus. I have looked at this in the 32-page, four-color, original 1977 publication. I am looking at it in this com- completely shot from the line art, no colors, uh, Delray uh, pocketbook paperback. It is the most lush, brilliant rendering uh, I speak a lot of how Mark Silvestri is rendering uh, his Batman Deadly Duo with the Joker and how it is state-of-the-art line work and Im- immaculate in its detail. The, the detail, it is immediately noticeable. Uh, the, way, the way he renders Chewbacca's fur. Um, Steve Lealoa is an amazing artist put on top of, again, Howard's very bold, very, I mean, great storyteller. Your eye flows easily through each and every page. And uh, they are an incredible, just an incredible match with one another. But as the chapters go further, because Steve Lealoa and his incredible immaculate brushwork on top of Howard Chaikin makes for just a different artist. What what it ultimately results in is a third artist, not Steve Lealoa, not Howard Chaikin, but Chaikin Lealoa combined. And I've been a part of those combos. You guys have told me before that you think when Todd McFarlane inks Rob Liefeld on those New Mutants uh, covers you think that we make a third style and i've been told when dan frega inks me and, and and again i can see it i can see it it's it's uh sometimes it's overpowering some of the inkers of the late 70s they were told like an alfredo alcala inking a john buscema it's hard sometimes to see john buscema through that um neil adams told me again and again and again he prided himself on bringing the artist out he didn't want to overpower uh here here these two combined for this wicked and i can't imagine the people at Lucasfilm, how excited they were when they got this latest. As good as the first issue is, it's graphic. It's um, Howard himself has a more angular graphic style. It's cool. He's more in the uh, in the Walt Simonson school of uh, again more of an angular approach, less rounded, more angular, sharp lines, very bold uh, graphic, black, white. Not a whole lot of rendering, and if it is rendered, it's a very stylistic extension of lines it's not the natural feathering well 
Lealoa can feather and then and then some again whether he is casting uh, uh, uh what's called cast blacks which is when the it, it's a shadow a cast black is a cast shadow it's the black area of the body the page the figure the face um Lealoa just adds another layer but here we go to the the uh the final issue and i remember as a kid going something else is going on here now by by the time i'm getting this this is in, this is in the fall but but now we have like even even different applications and the faces and so what's going on is a gentleman named Bill Ray W R A Y he did a lot of Hollywood storyboard work but also he's a very accomplished illustrator a uh, a gentleman named Rick Hoberg and uncredited a superstar named Dave Stevens yes Dave Stevens of the Rocketeer that dave stevens the late great dave stevens he of the lush uh pen and 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 line art um of the of the brush and quill and 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 the beautiful one of the things that dave stevens was known was his beautiful renderings of men and women alike he could not draw anything ugly it was beautiful it was enhanced well the star wars franchise would become so big that in the la times they announced again we got our daily newspaper and there was a big announcement wrapped, like wrapped on the cover of the paper as it was delivered. Star Wars is coming. Original Star Wars comic strip is coming. They created a Star Wars comic strip, not ad- adapting the movie, but new extended adventures, just like the adventures that you were getting from the Marvel comic. Well, about two months into the daily strip and the Sunday strip, uh, it was being done by Russ Manning, who had been doing Tarzan. The faces and the textures and the characters, and this was in a Boba Fett-themed storyline before Boba Fett Fett was in the uh, Empire Strikes Back. He was in the Daily Strip because, again, they had introduced him in the in the in the holiday special, and now they had the toy and they were cooking. They wanted to really embed um, Boba Fett, and it took place in the snow and it had all these uh, different creatures and the the lush line art, and it was being credited Russ Manning. Dave Stevens. And that is the first time that I had encountered Dave Stevens. And I went back and I'm like, this, these faces, this line art looks like what I was getting about a year back in this Star Wars uh, adaptation. And issue five, indeed, Rick Hoberg, Bill Ray both uh, took over the chores and again added an even more in depth rendering uh, style of. Of, of of finishing, embellishing, inking application over Howard Chaikin's pencils. Again, Howard is a kick-ass, accomplished, great storyteller, really interpreting this, but whether it's the close-ups on on Chewbacca or the last shot of, of, of Luke Skywalker and the last shot of Harrison Ford on the last two pages, Dave Stevens has rendered the absolute hell out of these. I spoke of it uh, about it to Dave Stevens once, his work on the strip and these this last issue. And again, Rick Hoberg went on to do all sorts of great stuff. I had seen him on a number of different Marvel comics. He he did some of my favorite what if issues. The what if um, Jane Foster had wielded Thor's hammer, which gave us our first look at Thordis um, that jumped in price last year when, when Love and Thunder was coming out. He did a number of great what ifs. He did a what if uh, Fantastic Four. Um, he, he was really almost a dedicated what if artist for a while, but he jumped around. He did DC work. He did he did All Star Squadron. He did all manner of, uh, of of comic book work, and I was a huge uh, Rick Hoberg fan. Really honored to have 
met him, made his acquaintance about 10 years ago. Uh, he did an independent book called Eternity Smith, if that, that uh, memory serves. But super talented guy. Again, all of these guys were, were storyboard uh, and, and uh, Hollywood kind of con- conceptual artists at the time. So they were pulled in through a relationship with Steve Lealoa and through Marvel and with Howard Chaikin. And on, in the last chapter of this book, wrapping up the brush with greatness, not only are you getting the lush Steve Lealoa applications. And again, I encourage you, if you can go back and look at this, look at, look at pure Howard Chaikin. It's great. All of issue one, the entirety of issue one. Then look at two, three, four, five. See Steve Lealoa just jam with him and create this brand new artist that doesn't look like Chicken, that doesn't look like Steve Lealoa. And then the last issue, you've got uncredited Dave Stevens with Rick Hoberg, with Bill Ray, and the work is lush and beautiful. And earlier you heard in Jim Shooter's you know, dissertation about how Roy Thomas saved Marvel by getting Marvel to do Star Wars. He said, you know, Howard was having trouble getting it out, so they put more artists on it. Really, it was more finishers. Again, Howard was doing all the breakdowns, and at the end, they just brought more compelling, uh, you know, accomplished embellishers to round up the work and finish it off. And again, you got to understand, what did Jim say? The sales on issue three went through the roof because now the movie's out. And there was a run on the back issues on one and two, but Marvel didn't have a real problem getting that out there because, like I said, the Whitman uh, issues sealed in plastic were that you know late late summer early fall boom already on the stands available at department stores beyond the comic book market star wars was was everywhere the comic book that's how important comic books were back in the day when there was no video games there was no vhs's there certainly were no smartphones no apps uh it was it was the best way to continue your adventures with the franchise and so uh brushed with greatness I don't know of an adaptation that had better talent attached to it than Howard Chaikin, Steve Lealoa, Rick Holberg, Bill Ray, W-R-A-Y, and Dave Stevens, you know, bringing up the rear in that last issue. Uh, the Star Wars comic book adaptation is a beautiful, beautiful comic. Uh, again, I, I highly recommend drinking it in in the Treasury edition. That's my favorite format. I, I, I um, quite often uh, pick these up. By the time the double edition, putting all of them together, oh, this Dave Stevens inked artwork um, up close and personal. Oh, baby. Uh, on, on 12 by 15, you know, uh, 10 by 15, whatever the measurements are. It's, it's stunning to look at in the, in the Treasury Edition. But, but here's the deal. In the back of this Treasury Edition that's, that in 1977, this, this, this is expensive. 114 pages, $2.50. At a time where the comics were 35 cents. $2.50. Marvel Special Edition, Treasury Edition. In the back, they're advertising Star Wars number 14, okay? They were already a year and two months into producing Star Wars comics and still putting out collected editions that were selling out, that were disappearing from the grocery store, from the mall, from the, the, uh, you know, big giant family retail outlets. Brushed with greatness. Uh, I'm not sure it gets better. Study this art as much as you can. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. Again, the Star Wars comic goes so much further than just the impact of the movie. It is a really brilliant, uh, one of the best adaptations that I've ever withheld, especially given the current, given the conditions, they were not allowed to see the show. They had to deal, the, the, the production, they weren't allowed to see the moving footage. Uh, they had to work from, you know, concept drawings, illustrations, obviously the Ralph McQuarrie stuff is brilliant. Uh, but those are very static images. And then again, photo, 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 photo reference. So that is brushed with greatness. And, as we do on all of our um, amazing Rob Topsy issues, we then move, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, 
we, we, we then move from brushed with greatness to sugar rush. And let me tell you something. Uh, this is not without its sugar rush. Mighty Marvel made sure that every damn issue had multiple splash pages. And I am telling you right now, the splash page 2-1, the splash page 2, issue 2, the giant Howard Chaykin spares uh, no expense uh, giving you some juicy big shots. Uh, they under, he understands the importance of a three-quarter page shot as as as, it, as when Alderaan is expl- exploding and you've got the giant faces of Grand Moff Tarkin, as I said, that are so beautifully illustrated and the, and the Leahs that look like, uh, that looked, exactly like carrie fisher you've got an entire splash page when they come upon the death star uh with a couple of inset panels uh and and uh, in in the in the del rey paperback this this paperback from the line art it's actually page 53 in here but again uh page 60 when they break when when they spring uh the the leah loose and then they're attacked within uh the 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 the, the prison where, where where han destroys the comms uh when he he's not liking where the conversation is going Great three-quarter page splash shot. Uh, the splash page to issue four with them standing in the corridor. Uh, Han is at front and center. Behind him are Luke, Leah, and Chewie. They're, they're blasting away. Howard Chicken never forgets this is a comic book first foremost. He he lays this out uh, with, with great comic book flair. Like I said, I redrew all of these Vader versus Obi-Wan panels because they're so great. The angles, the shots. Remember, this is 1977. The facing page to this, right before on the page that Vader decides that he's going to lift his saber and take out uh, Obi-Wan is a huge, uh, great shot of, again, Princess Leia's face. The following has a giant uh, Luke, Luke Skywalker face as he reacts and, and the, the, the panel where Vader takes out uh, Kenobi is as I think it's even more impressive the way Howard Chicken utilized comic book kind of illustrative effects as he basically dissipates Obi-Wan. This thing is full of sugar. It is an absolute rush. Again, they do not, uh, uh, they do not, uh, forget to have splash pages, splash pages, splash pages, big, pa- big panels, big pages, big moments. And I'm telling you, Part of the Sugar Rush are the covers, which are brought to you by, some are brought to you by Dave Cockrum. Uh, some are, uh, uh, who, who was Marvel's dedicated cover artist at the time. Obviously, some are brought to you by Howard Chaikin. Uh, they're just, this entire, this entire book is a Sugar Rush. And if you can get in black, and the, the, the black and white line art, the entire thing qualifies as a Sugar Rush. Legacy is the last thing we do here on Rob, Rob Topsy. And I don't think there's a better legacy, as I've already said in this, this episode, uh, than, than having saved Marvel Comics. How many times do you need uh, people in, a, in an official capacity to, to state it, whether it was Roy being told by Galton, who was, who, look, Jim Galton was the money guy behind the scenes. He's the one who would eventually remove Jim Shooter from his post at, 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 as editor-in-chief in 1987. And then install Tom DeFalco. I mean, he, Jim Galton was the big money guy. He was the big boss. If he's saying it, if Roy Thomas is repeating it, if Jim Shooter is stating it, and he had really nothing to do with it, you know, just take it to the bank. I've had people in the business who, when I told this story to them in 2011, 2012, 2013, say, oh, I'm not sure about that. And when I mean in the business, they worked at Marvel in official capacities. I worked with these people. I was so disappointed in their lack of knowledge of what had gone on you know, in the building, in the halls, you know, of, 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 of the, of the company that Star Wars 
had in fact saved. I was so appalled that they didn't know the history. But that's par for the course nowadays. And that's why we're here dissecting this as carefully as we can. Uh, for, for me as a kid, the legacy will be just, it was a blast. And, and, and getting, I felt like I got behind the scenes, all the stuff that didn't make itself to screen. This particular depiction of Jabba the Hutt, that um, repeated Tatooine scene with Biggs, Darklighter, those extra smooches with Leah. I felt like I was seeing something in, in its most raw form. And in fact, we were, we were, you know, inhaling uh, all the, the material that they had to, to work with to create this. And then it caught fire. And again, I cannot recommend more. The first three years that follow this, it's really not the subject today, but the entire Star Wars Marvel comic book run that lasted to the mid 80s, you get great work by Walt Simonson, by Ron Friends, by Cynthia Martin, obviously Howard Chaikin. Uh, you get a Herb Trimp issue in there. You get Carmen Infantino, one of the greatest artists of the Silver Age, paired with a state-of-the-art inker in Terry Austin, and they give you just some incredible chapters that I cannot love even more. But it was more uh, of the Wild Wild West uh, as Empire Strikes Back was 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 shaping up, and they were figuring out Star Wars in the early days. Marvel had a big, a much wider net to deal with because they 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 were told certain things were off limit. Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker cannot meet. But otherwise, they had to create all sorts of different planets, uh, uh, adventures, and and I bought into all of it. And it all started with this comic. So the legacy, and it may be Roy Thomas's greatest legacy, because giving Star Wars a comic book birth, and what a great, let, let's say that he did in fact get the sloppy seconds, or even as he says, I, I omitted it when I was saying it, he goes, or somebody's sloppy thirds. What if Warren Magazine did turn him down and DC Comics did turn him down? What a triumph. You took the risk. You went, went into Marvel management. You convinced Galton and Stan Lee to take, to take the plunge, and it reaped a generation of rewards. I mean, generation after generation. I'm going to tell you, old guys like me, I was in my 40s when the license came back to Marvel, and it left Dark Horse. The Dark Horse stuff was great. It was fantastic. But... uh the Marvel stuff is the sweet spot, and I'm so glad that Marvel and Star Wars reunited because of this tremendous legacy. Thank you for listening to yet another version, edition of, of Rob Topsy. I just love cutting up these bodies of work, devoting more time, more intense scrutiny to them. Uh, at the end of each and every episode, whether it's a Rob Topsy or a Rob Observation, we try and work in your reviews. You guys have been just crushing with the reviews lately, I cannot even keep up. Thank you so much for your generosity in in sh- in spreading the love on this show. I kid, I, I cannot begin to tell you how grateful I am for all that you provide for this show. When you give us a great review, it helps the platform. It really expands. Uh, it expands our awareness. It shows that people are listening and that they love it. This is from Cowbell TV. Cowbell Ka- need more Cowbell. Okay, Cowbell TV. Gave us five stars. Fun listen for any comic fan. He says, in my 47 years of collecting comics, I have read a lot of Rob Liefeld's work. I have enjoyed many of his creations, but I don't consider myself a particular giant Rob Liefeld comic book fan. I can now say that I am a giant Rob Observations fan. I am impressed by not only his knowledge, his passion, but how similar our early comic experiences are. Rob Observation has become my favorite podcast. Check it out. Well, I am happy to have you on board. Cowbell, thank you for that 
five stars. Thank you for that review. It is that enthusiasm that keeps me going, that gets me excited about doing this show. So thank you. And thank you to each and every one of you listeners, whether you leave a, uh, a response or not. I know it's not everybody's jam. I just thank you so much for anybody that goes forth, puts it down, uh, uh, you know, submits it. And, and I'm always so happy to, to share and to read them. On social media, uh, please follow me on Twitter. I'm all over social media. On Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld. I always have to go out of the way to tell you I'm the long name on there. It's the only place I didn't get Rob Liefeld. R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. I I have that weirdo blue check that's become controversial, but it, it is a verification of sorts. Please follow me there. I love our discussions, our back and forths. It is such a blast to speak to you on that platform. Follow me at Robert Liefeld on Instagram. It is my photo dump of my life, of my drawings, of my food, of my family. Uh, the, the stuff I'm doing, it, 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 it's, um, I, one of my kids they, they, they shall go undenied said, dad, dad, your, your Instagram is trash. And, uh, if you want to look at my trash Instagram, I, I highly recommend that you follow me at Rob Liefeld. Again, I have that pesky blue check, but it's a verification. I read your DMS, your comments, uh, your messaging. Thank you so much. If you're following me on Instagram, I cannot tell you how, how much I appreciate the interaction that we have over on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. On Facebook, I have a group. It's a group, not a page. It's a group. It's called Rob Liefeld. Here I go, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. I, I try and say it like, like Toy Story. Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. Okay. Uh, it's a group where we continue all these conversations. We talk about the podcast. We talk about comics. We have art contests. I'd love to see you over there and continue these conversations. Um, again, whatever you want to share, uh, load it up. You'll be uh, entered into the group by either myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. I say this to you because you'll know that you're in the right place if one or both of us click you through. So we would love to see you over on Facebook, Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and beyond. There's an app called Whatnot. It's a kick-ass collectibles app, trading cards, playing cards, uh, you know, sports cards, sports memorabilia, comics, toys, Funkos. It's all over there. I I'm Rob Liefeld. Follow me at Rob Liefeld. You'll get notifications of my shows when they go live. They're generally on Wednesdays or Saturdays or both. Uh, I share with you my signed comics, my custom signatures, remarks, toys, action figures, Funkos, and, and original art. It's, it's all up for grabs during the two to three hours that I'm looking right at you, right into the live stream. I love it so much. It's such a fun time to hang with you guys. I am not currently touring or doing any store signings of, of, of any kind, but signed. Uh, Again, Funkos, toys, comics, and art is is what we share with you during that live stream feed. So follow me on the WhatNot app. Download it. Follow Rob Liefeld, and I hope to see you soon. You'll get notifications of my shows. I hope very much that you're taking care of yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. I, it's, it's, it's a crazy balance. Uh, this this 2023 has been crazy with, with all sorts of uh, drama and medical stuff with extended family members here in the Liefeld house, and we have juggled it as best we can. But we always make sure that we share, my wife and I, we, we watch something that we love. We go our separate ways. We have our reading times. We, we, we get together. We chat. We go out. We have great meals, fun, you know, gourmet tacos, uh, hamburgers, steaks, pizza, Italian food, uh, Indian food. We just, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's a way that we keep it going, even though we're part of the grind with, with life's responsibilities. We've raised three kids. We now have older, you know, uh, both of my parents are gone. Um, we have aunts, uncles, Joy's parents. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I talk to you about what I am going through myself because I know we are all going through shared experiences. 
And the way that I do it is with comics and books and the news sometimes and movies and streaming and food and spending time with family and friends. And I wish you the very same so that your well-being will be uh, as positive as possible. Please come back and visit me again because I will be here. We will most certainly, absolutely, indefinitely talk again real soon.